welcome to Dr. Drew Podcast. And, of course, remember to support the people that support us. Keep wind in the sail, the Corolla Pirate Ship. Don't forget the swinging sounds. And also, um, click through on the Amazon banner. It doesn't cost you a thing, but it helps, again, keep that wind in the sail. And uh, do support the people that support us. We feel really good about the people we choose to help um, promote on this podcast and others. And so we uh, stand behind them, and we are happy to have them with us. And uh, hope you'll support them and keep us keep us moving forward here. It is uh, my privilege to welcome today Gretchen Rubin. The website is GretchenRubin.com. The book is Outer Order, Inner Calm. Gretchen, welcome to the program. Hey, how are you? We are good. Thank you for being here. So where should we start here? Should we start with the Happiness Project? Because that's, um, I think, we're the interesting place to start. Sure, absolutely. It's also called Why I Spend a Year Trying to Sing in the Morning, Clean My Closets, Fight Right, Read Aristotle, and Generally Have More Fun. Hmm. Yes, it just had its 10th anniversary, so that was exciting to have a 10th anniversary edition um, come back. Most books don't get a chance to do that, so I felt really lucky that I, I got to um, uh, reintroduce the book to the world 10 years later. And, you know, this mm, i got to get into some other stuff here, but I want to get back into happiness, start with happiness, because since you wrote that book, it seems like happiness, the conversation about happiness became ubiquitous, Right. You were sort of a leading leading edge on the conversation about happiness. Well, it's funny that you say that because at the time people were like, there's so many books about happiness. There's not room for one more. What yeah. else are you going to say? So at the time it felt very saturated, but you're absolutely right. Um, since the book has come out, it's, there's been even more written about happiness. So it seems like it's a subject there. People have a lot to say and people are very interested in, in learning about it. it my, my criticism of most of literature, particularly back then, was that there was not even any attempt to define what they were talking about when they used the word happiness, as though that was some sort of intuitive phenomenon that we were supposed to magically understand. But I think – I hope you agree that it's at least two major – it breaks down into two major categories at least. Um, well, it's interesting because I started my career in law, and I, I and I have so many memories of you know spending a semester arguing about the definition of contract. Yeah. Um, and as you say, you know, happiness is an even more elusive um, uh, concept. And I think there's something like fifteen academic definitions of happiness, right. but I really don't get into defining it because I think people really do start. Um, getting very focused on, is it this, is it that, is it the scientific terms, is it peace, satisfaction, well-being, um, you know, to me, for the lay person, I think it's good that, that it's, uh, a, it's a loose enough idea that we can all bring um, our own idea into it, but you're absolutely right, if you're going to have a scientific discussion, you have to define your terms very clearly, so it's it's um, so that you know that you're talking about the same things if you're doing any right. kind of research or study. But even in the lay conversation, I, I always like to carve out pleasure as a separate piece of it. I mean, you, you, you have to be not in pain and there has to be a certain amount of pleasure involved. But, it, you know, I, I always – when I started reading this literature 15 years ago, I thought to myself, well, is nobody happier from a pleasure standpoint, from a hedonic standpoint, than my heroin addicts when they get the first hit of the day? But they're not happy or flourishing or thriving or having any kind of But I don't think good... anybody argues that. I don't think that anybody really seriously argues that a life that is dedicated to pleasure is a happy life in any kind of um, meaningful, long-term way. I don't, I don't know that anybody's arguing that. Except the average person kind of is caught up in that, i got to tell you. They're, they're very – again, that's why, again, the heroin addicts that I deal with, they can't imagine any other kind of happiness. Well, it's interesting because, um, and, and probably uh, you have had the same kind of like series of, of, of train of thought, because um, after I wrote The Happiness Project, I wrote a book called Happier at Home, and, but then I wrote a book called Better Than Before that's all about habits. Um, how do people make and break habits? Um, because when you talk to people about how they want to be happy, um, a lot of times they talk about a habit, and for some people it's like the habit of getting more sleep or the habit of exercising, and for some people it's like the habit of giving up drinking or drinking less or quitting sugar or I didn't talk to anybody who was quitting heroin the way you are. Um, but clearly these habits have enormous consequences for us. If we have habits that work for us, we're much more likely to be happy, healthy, productive, creative. If we have habits that don't work for us, this can become a stumbling block or even destructive of any opportunity um, to be happy. And you're as, I mean, it's so true when it comes to habits, the quick fix the immediate hit 
very, very hard to manage for and, most and, people. And I and I so agree with you that the word habit is not one that we use enough, I think, because we don't think about it enough in any event. Like what is a good habit, a bad habit, how to establish habits. And the hardest thing for me in talking to people, once you get them to sort of acknowledge that a habit would be good or maybe helpful – how to get them to change, those moments of change and then sustaining change and perpetuating change, really hard for people. Well, that's what the whole book, um, Better Than Before, is about. Because what I try to do is, I, what I do is I identify the 21 strategies that people use to make or break habits. And sometimes people are like, 21 is too many. Give me three. Give me the big three. <laughs> no, right. It's like, well, the, the fact is, some work well, really well for some people, and they don't work at all for other people. Or some of them are available to us at some times in our lives, but not at all times of our lives. And so you sort of are, you're, it's to your advantage that there's a lot to choose from. So then you can look at all of them and say, well, given what, given my nature, given my circumstances, given what's worked for me in the past, how could I go about doing this in the most effective way and not just like throwing spaghetti against the wall and hoping that I'm going to change a major habit? Um, Because I think it's very clear that a lot of things that people consider to be like, well, this is the best way to change a habit, don't work for everybody. We'd all have perfect habits if that were the case. And so you really have to tailor it to each individual um, for what works for them. And for some people, it's really, really hard because they've never, you know, the, the old, they've never established a habit. The old, the old term "discipline" is something they've never been subjected to in the sense of disciplining themselves. I mean, I know, you know, when you have a graduate degree and you've been at Yale Law School and stuff, it, it, we forget what it's like to have to force ourselves to do something, and how hard it was for many people at the beginning. Um. I'm sorry, you're you're kind of going in and out. Uh-oh. So I took my uh, earphone. I hope it was my headset. So can just say the way you said again. I'm just saying that, that I was crackling. when you've when you've been when you've been to professional school and you've you know been working at a very high level for a long time, you you forget how hard it is for some people to discipline themselves to get themselves to do something, even if something relatively simple. Well, it's funny that you say that because um, I was very, very interested in that. Why is it that some people seem to find this so much easier than other people do? And I have to say, I count myself as one of them. I'm one of these people who's pretty good at changing habits, and it kind of puzzled me um, to see how people struggled and, and that they struggled in different ways. It wasn't just sort of more or less, but there were sort of different variations. And that's when I came up with my four tendencies framework, which divides people into four categories, upholder, questioner, obliger, and rebel, and um, based on how we respond to expectations. Because we all have outer expectations, like a work deadline or a request from a friend. And then we have our inner expectations, like I want to keep a New Year's resolution. I want to get back into practicing guitar. And depending on how a person meets outer and inner expectations, that determines their um, their tendency. And what you see is that depending on how you frame a habit or how you present information to someone, if you don't take their tendency into account, you can actually make things much worse. Mm-hmm. Um, because you're speaking to them in a way that doesn't resonate with them or is actually making them uh, want to resist. Um, because, because, you're, because that's a very, very important point. People don't show the same level of um, aptitude for discipline right. um, in the same way. How do, you, how do you help somebody who tends to resist? Because that's the more common um, well, let me just go through the four because they sure. it's sort of like different for each of them. And, and there's a quiz on my site, which like 1.7 million people have taken. Um, it, it's a really quick quiz, but actually just from the very brief discussion, um, description I'll give, most people don't even need to take the quiz. It's obvious what they are. Um, so an upholder is somebody who rel- rel- um, readily meets outer and inner expectations. So they keep the work deadline. They, they meet the New Year's resolution without much fuss. Um, they want to know what other people expect of them, but their expectations for themselves are just as important. Then there are questioners. Questioners question all expectations. They'll do something if they think it makes sense. They resist anything arbitrary, inefficient, unjustified. They always want to know why. They're making everything an inner expectation. If it makes sense to them, they'll do it. If it doesn't make sense to them, they will push back. Obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. So this is like a friend of mine on the tra- who said, I don't understand why I can't exercise now because when I was in high school, I was on the track team and I never missed track practice. So why can't I go running these days? Mm-hmm. Well, it's when she had a team and a coach expecting her to do it, 
no problem, but she couldn't go on her own. And then finally, rebels resist outer and inner expectations alike. So they want to do what they want to do in their own way, in their own time. They can do anything they want to do, anything they choose to do. But if you ask or tell them to do something, they're very likely to resist. Um, and typically, they don't even like to tell themselves what to do. So they, they don't want to take a class every 10, at 10 o'clock every Saturday. They want to, they're like, what, I don't know what I'm going to want to do on Saturday. So you can see how if you're dealing with a rebel and you say, you promised me you would quit. The doctor says, you have to quit. You, you know, I need you to quit. The rebel's going to be thinking, you're not the boss of me. You right. can't make me. Right. But you have to appeal to the rebel value. Rebel values are freedom, choice, identity. You know, you might say, you know, they often respond to challenge. You could say something like, you know what? You can't quit now. It's got its hooks into you so deep. You're trapped. You could never get out of it now. You've been addicted so long. You're stuck. I don't even know why you're trying because it's too hard. You're chained. Because then they're going to be like, Nothing controls me. I'm in control of myself. No one, you know, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I want to be free. I want to make my own choices. Or there's a lot of things that you could do. There, there are several different ways you could go about it with a rebel, but you could see how the kind of thing that you might think would be very convincing could actually be counterproductive depending on who you're speaking to. Yeah, that, that group is the one I'm dealing with all the time, and, and they break down into four or five different subcategories for sure. And you know, that's why we use a lot of motivational enhancement interviewing to try to get them to the point where they see it for themselves. Right, because for rebels, identity is a core, core value. So it's like, this is the person I want to be. This is who I am. This is how I want to be in the world. I'm an athlete. I respect my body. Right. I'm a responsible parent. Like, who do you want to be? Is this getting in the way of you being who you are? The, the biggest problem that I have with that group is they, they don't see themselves accurately. They have tr- tremendous distortions about that. And when they do see themselves as they actually are, boom, then they become willing to change. That's, when, mm. that's their moment of change. Because they have an identity in their head that is not the identity that is actually in the world. Right. And it's, it, it's how they sustain their nonsense, you know, and they, mm-hmm. they, it can be very distorted and it can, be, it can miss obvious, you know, things that everybody else sees. Right. Um, yes. And, and it's yes. interesting. I, I, the, so I'm, I'm fascinated yes. by these moments of change that they have because they're, they're sudden and they, they feel like, you know, they'll say they feel like God stepped in or something, like something yes. came in from the outside so they could suddenly – like the scales from the fall from their eyes all of a sudden. Yeah, and that's what in my in my framework that's called the strategy of the lightning bolt. Yeah, and it's a very um, frustrating strategy because it's enormously effective, but it's the one strategy that happens to you. Right, you cannot make it happen. Um, well, I found I found I think a technique that kind of works, which is that literally they need to see themselves with a new pair of glasses. And one of the ways these people are usually very closed off and and um, fearful of closeness with other humans. And if you can get them to spend time just being with another person that's not the kind of person they would normally be with, because normally they'll mm. they'll find people that fit with them. Homophily. That yeah. they can bullshit and manipulate and all this. And if you and if you find somebody that's kind of new and but but interesting to you, if they spend a little bit of time with that person and ask them what they think of them and what how they experience them they may the scales may fall from their mm. eyes and, and and that tends to be something because i've interviewed a lot of people where they have these giant moments of change and i'll just go were you hanging out with? they'll often go yeah i was hanging out with a guy i didn't normally hang out with and we'd spent a couple of weeks together and i tell you it was interesting we talked about poetry and then all of a sudden i was walking past a mirror and oh my god i saw myself i couldn't <sighs> believe it and it's like it's like yeah you you were messed up you were you know, you'd had three death overdoses, and you were in the hospital again with an IV pole. And this time, you saw the IV pole. Come on now. And uh, well, you know, it's so fascinating because I'm reminded of how sometimes with hoarders, one of the way because hoarders are like everything's fine. They'll yeah. take a picture of an of an interior, and yeah. then they'll show it to them, and they'll say, "What do you think of this?" And they see the hoarding in the photograph. Yeah. But there's something about when you, when you're in the space it feels very safe and cozy and yep. right. Yep. But then when, but then the, but it's like it's it's how do you break that and and have someone have that clear sight? 
Um, so that's interesting. So they have to see the kind of the reflection through someone else's experience. And, and then, then sometimes, they, I mean, think about where self comes from. You know, self emerges in an interpersonal context. Yes. Self, self doesn't happen spontaneously. It happens, yes. you know, initially with mom and then with other people and then our peers. And, and our sense of self develops in reflection from others. Well, and it's funny because, I mean, you mentioned how people hang out with people who are like them, and this is just like a, a very well-established human tendency. Yeah. And I was reminded of this because I was reading an essay about a woman who had quit drinking, and she was saying, well, but of course, you know, all you do all day is get, is all, everybody that you hang out with is constantly encouraging you to drink. And yeah. she wasn't even talking about, like, commercials on TV or, like, no, no. How, many, how much alcohol there is in airports now. Yeah. But just, like, she was specifically talking about Facebook posts where, like, people would be like, oh, it's, you know, right. it's martini time. Or if you talked about something that happened, people would be like, oh, crack open a bottle of wine. She's like, see, this stuff that happens all the time. I'm like, I have literally never had a message like this in my feed ever. Nobody <laughs> ever says anything like right. this to me. And so she doesn't even realize what she experiences. Like, well, this is just the way everybody is in our culture. Right. You don't realize, like, no, this is where you are hanging out. Well, it's it's something we rarely talk about, which is attraction. So who are they attracted to? They're yes. attracted to people that co-sign their using or codependents that enable the using. And those people are very appealing and they're magically attracted yes. to them. And the yes. codependents, you know, obviously they're seeking the alcoholic out too because it fits for them to support to co-sign their nonsense. So yes. it's it's a it's an interesting thing we get into that gets ourselves stuck. And um, so that's the rebel. And the one before the rebel was the obliger. Uh, obliger. Obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. So you that's get the lots of tendency you get in a lot the of world. structure like, for, for them? men and women. That's the biggest tendency. Do you have to get coaches or structure or something? Is it, how do you do that? What they need is outer accountability. Yeah. So, and that, it's kind of interesting because for an obliger, the kind of the, the, every tendency has its limitations and weaknesses. But and but for obliger, it's like the easiest fix to just like paste on, which is outer accountability. If you want to read more, join a book group. If you want to exercise, take a class, um, sign up with a trainer, work out with a friend who's going to be annoyed if you don't show up. You know, just create yeah. outer accountability. Gotcha. And, um, and and there's really hilarious um, things that people have come up, very ingenious. Um, like I know somebody who wanted to like write a novel in her free time and she never did it. Cause it and it's like, I can't put myself first with all the demands that are made for me. How could I possibly do it? Even though it's my priority, why do I keep letting myself down? Mm-hmm. I keep breaking my New Year's resolutions. And so then she went, she had two kids, and so she said to her kids, you have your work to do, and I have my work to do. And if you see that I am not doing my work, you don't have to do your homework. Mm-hmm. And so then her kids are like her police, because they're like, hey, Mom, why don't you take a night off? You know. And so she has to do it if she wants them to do their homework. That's and so you can create outer accountability in all different kinds of ways. That is an, and that, that seems like a very creative process, coming up with those outer accountabilities. Well, and, but, you know, because the blazer is so big, I think there's a lot of solutions. There's apps. There's AA. There's Weight Watchers. There's, there's classes. There's, you know, auto reminders on your phone. Um, there's a lot of things that give people outer accountability. But here's where the problem comes, because people think, because so many people need outer accountability, they think, well, everybody benefits from outer accountability. They try to give outer accountability to, like, a questioner or a rebel, and they get, it doesn't work. It's not useful. It can be counterproductive because if I feel like you're looking over my shoulder and you keep reminding me what I need to do, you're going you're gonna to create in me a spirit of resistance. So I need to back off. Like, Britain, just even taking a tiny example, for some reason many rebels want to learn to speak another language. Maybe mm-hmm. that's because, I don't know. But they, like, at least four rebels have mentioned to me how they signed up specifically for Duolingo. Hmm. the language learning app, and then it, they were so annoyed by the reminders and <laughs> notifications that were telling them, like, you need to do your daily word or whatever it is, that they quit. And, and then the, the questioner, would you need to give them information so they understand why they're doing what they're doing? Absolutely. Yeah. That is what they need. They need justification. They need reasons. And, it's, and a lot of times it's like what you think might be a reason isn't enough. Um, and this, it's, so questioners are the people who are told that they ask too many questions. They're the ones that like drive the doctors crazy because they're doing all this research on their own. Um, they need, they need, and they also love customization. So they want to know not just that you're saying this is a good idea, but you're saying this is the best way for me. Mm. Um, they need to be convinced of someone's authority and expertise. And so it's really important to establish, like, why, am I, why would I listen to you anyway? Huh. You know, why, 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 why do I think you've got the answers? 
Um, and so they really have to. But then, but the nice thing about questioners, once they once they have a re, they've decided this makes sense, then um, then they can move forward. And it, so it's interesting. Like when my father quit smoking many years ago now, but you know it was a struggle, and um, he's a questioner. And so you might think, like, oh, he's the father of a young family. He owes it to his family to be healthy. Well, he didn't find that particularly compelling. For him, what was more compelling is, hey, Jack, how much money are you spending on cigarettes? Uh It's costing you this much. Now, how much money would you make if you took that money and you invested it and you got a certain rate of return? And he would just run the numbers and run the numbers. And he realized, it's just crazy to spend money this way. (laughs) There's such a better way that, you know, to, to spend that money than to buy cigarettes. And so for him... You know, for someone else, it might have been the health. Oh, my gosh, for every cigarette I smoke, I'm taking off this many years, or I'm, in a, you know, I'm raising my risk, and they'd run those numbers. Um, so, again, even when you know someone's tendency, you can sometimes say, like, well, I'm going to try this justification, that justification, this other justification. You know, it's, again, it's not one size fits all. As you know, there's a, people are so different from each other. And the they, first category, again, was? That's questioner. So oh, the question is the first one. Okay. Upholder, questioner, upholder and rebel. Upholder, we didn't go over. What, what do they need? Well, see, this is interesting. They don't. They don't need much. They're they're very rebel is the smallest group. They're the second smallest group. I'm an upholder myself. And what's interesting, and this is totally not scientific, so I'm just saying this is anecdata. But for what it's worth, it's kind of interesting. Um, I did a with a quiz. I obviously there's selection bias in a quiz that it's like an online quiz that people can just sure, take. That's sure. the quiz that 1.7 million people have taken. But then I pay to have a representative sample take it, so that I would really have something where I felt like it really reflected kind of what you would see in the population. And what I saw in terms of the distribution was very much what I'd observed. So it really rang true for me for my observation. But I threw in a question. Have you struggled with addiction? And I didn't define the word. I didn't say, I didn't, that's all I said. So again, I'm not saying it's scientifically valid, but it's interesting. All of the other, a questioner, obliger, and rebel all answered pretty much the same. But there was seeming to be something protective about being an upholder. Upholders were less likely to say that they had struggled with addiction. It wasn't zero by any means, huh. but it was less. And so I wonder if there is something about the Because up- upholders are very focused on execution. They're very focused on meeting expectations, both inner and outer. They tend to be very focused on things like, I need my sleep. I need my leisure. Um, I don't care that you baked me a cake for my birthday. It's a very nice gesture, but I don't eat sugar, so I'm not going to eat your cake. Mm. Um, it seems to be something protective about upholders, um, um, given their values, um, which was which isn't because they 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 are the ones who find it easiest probably to to follow habits, and they delight in discipline. The motto of the upholder is "Discipline is my freedom." Yeah, I feel that so deeply in my soul. It's hard for me to understand how other people do not experience that, right. but they don't. I, they I don't. get it. I get it. Especially when you've just been in an academic environment for many, many years of your training, right? Because it just sort of becomes automatic. No, I don't think so. Do you? I don't think it comes automatically for, to people. No, no, no. For the upholder. Oh, I think the upholder has it from age three. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think they get into the academic environment because they do it well. I think yeah. they bring that to it. Yeah. I, I, I don't think it's something that's trained into you. I think it's something that you bring to it. Um, yeah. I think I'm in that. Yeah, I think it's genetically hardwired. I think yeah. I'm in that category too, but I feel like for myself, it, it developed its own – the word freedom I was sort of glomming onto. You said that the freedom came late in my training where it became its, – it, it was its own freeing process. I don't know how else to describe it than that. You know, it, it's, it's when, you know, when Aristotle talks about the contemplative life, that makes sense to me <laughs> because it's something that's easy. But it wasn't always that way. It just I, I had a tendency that way, but it wasn't always free. Mm, interesting. Um it wasn't free in what way? You didn't feel free? You felt bound? It, it felt like it. I still I had to bind myself to the work. Uh, and now it's just free. It's just automatic. It's, uh, it's effortless. Uh, when, when earlier in life I had to buckle down to use old you know, sort of ideas uh, and then force myself to do things that I didn't want to do, <laughs> homework or whatever. Uh, but I could do it. It wasn't that I couldn't do it. I could do it, but I had to, I had to really – and it, it's something about the male brain too. This is just sort of an aside. I mean, it it started it freeing up around twenty, 
Well, certainly at 20, it became a lot easier. And about 23, it became free. So, hmm. yeah, weird. Um, so tell me about Outer Order, Inner Calm. So my book, Out of Order, Aaron Calm, is coming out in March. I'm very excited about it. Um, And it's a fun little book that I undertook because one of the things that surprised me kind of in my larger study of happiness and human nature is how often people would say that getting out of order, like, gave them either a sense of inner calm or kind of on the other side, energy, optimism, a feeling of possibility. Um, A friend of mine once said, I finally cleaned out my fridge, and now I know I can switch careers. And I know exactly what he meant. Like, there's just this weird connection um, between outer order and feeling, you know, kind of capable and ready to go. And and, and kind of more than it should. I mean, I think we would all agree that it's a crowded coat closet or an overflowing in-basket is trivial in the context of a happy life. Like, what does it matter if your car's messy or you've got files all over your office floor, like, it's just not a big deal. And yet, over and over, people would say, oh, my gosh, like, I, I finally spent a half an hour cleaning out my office, and I feel amazing. And I feel that way, too. And yeah. I just wanted to kind of study it, because it's such an interesting phenomenon. Well, I've heard happiness researchers ask, you know, what's the one thing you would ask somebody to do to contribute to their happiness? And I've seen more than, heard more than one of them say, make your bed. Well, it's funny because when I ask people what is, because I always say to people, well, what resolutions, happiness project resolutions have you tried? What have you, what, what's worked for you? People will say, make their bed. Now, I will say, this is not true. Like, there are some people who are just clutter blind and don't care about clutter. And there's a certain number of people who are like, I'm a grown up and I don't make my bed and I love not making my bed. I'm like, then that's what makes you happier. There's no <laughs> magic to making your bed. It's right. just that for most people, that little bit of order and it kind of just makes every, it makes them feel like they're keeping their promises to themselves, which is a happy feeling. And then it just creates that outer order that's very pleasing to, um, to most people, not all people, but most people. In the original book, The Happiness Project, you add read Aristotle in your, um, you know, mm-hmm. why you spend a year trying to sing, et cetera. Uh, why read Aristotle? Well, I wanted Aristotle to stand for kind of the ancient philosophy because, um, I, you know, I'm, I, I was studying all the contemporary research, all the kind of cutting-edge science, but I also was going back to the great minds, and so, and obviously, you know, you can't, you can't, look at that that material without looking at Aristotle. Um, and, you know, one of the things that's funny is that a lot of times there's stuff that people talk about now as if it's like, you know, giant revelation. And you're like, people have been talking about that for thousands of years. Like, yeah, this I- is all, it's too important to be new. Um, I mean, obviously we're getting nuances and there's things that are counter- counterintuitive and there are big debates that have gone on. But if something's really new, I'm like, it's probably not true because people, the greatest minds in history have been thinking about this for a long time. Um, Aristotle, yeah. Aristotle wrote a lot about happiness. And I'm, I'm not yes, sure, I, again, there's question about whether we've been translating that word properly, right? It's You can get into that, yeah. yeah. I, you know, I just, I think it's my legal training. I just find it like, we can go around and around on that. And then there's the thing that people do when they're like, well, I don't want to have a happy life. What is the point of that? I want to have a life of purpose mm-hmm. and, and fulfillment. And when I'm giving to the world and making the most of myself, and I'm like, well, what do you think a happy life would look like? That's exactly what would make a person happy, unless you start playing word games and saying, I don't mean happy, I mean blah, blah, blah. Right. Okay. Well, if, well but I think... If you say so. I think most of you would argue that's what Aristotle meant by eudaimonia, which Well, is, yeah, you can get... Yes, we can... Yes, that's... Yes, you can... You can... Yes, but, many, but, but, many have. But to be fair, happiness and a good life do separate. They can be separate things because you can have, be unhappy Absolutely. and lead a good Absolutely. life. Absolutely. I'm not sure Jesus was happy at the end. It's not happy. Well, but I always good think life. about it this way, and I think this is, and this is why I don't like like one to ten scales, or like I would, I never would score myself on a one to ten scale, or, or so. Let's say two people. Um, one guy is a receptionist in a dentist's office. He has very nice coworkers. He works from nine to five. Um, very pleasant. The people who come in every day are very pleasant. He's got a nice boss. You know. Windows, sunlight, quiet street. He's very happy. He's got a great job. Then you take another guy. He is the head of emergency services at an urban hospital. He's got people coming in all the time. He's got death. He's got drugs. He's got violence. He's got people crying. He's got people dying all over the place. 
any one day, if you said, okay, where are these people scoring on the 1 to 10 scale? It would be, you know, and then and you'd say, which of these people is happier? And then you'd say, well, who has the happier life? Right. Well, it's just, it just completely depends on what you mean and what you want and what your values are. And how do you even go about thinking about that? Right. Do you? Do you? I, do, I mean, I don't think I don't think it's possible to say mm. of those two people who is happier. Right. It's like, how do you know? Right. It's a how could it, we possibly know what that means? I mean, that's why you think for each of us, we have to decide for ourselves. You know, given our nature, our 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 values, our interests, our temperament, our circumstances. How can we have the life? that is as happy as we can make it, you know? Right. Like, for most of us, there's low-hanging fruit. There's stuff we can do without much trouble <laughs> to make right. ourselves happier. If you're like me and the list of books I'm going to read or people you suggest that I read I never get to, you simply don't have time to read everything. Well, Blinkist has a solution to your long list of must-reads and this once and for all. It's the only app that takes thousands of the best-selling nonfiction books and distills them down to their most impactful elements – so you can read or listen to them in under 15 minutes all on your phone. With Blinkist, you'll expand your knowledge, learn more in just 15 minutes than you can almost any other way. Plus, you can listen anywhere. I listen in the car. I listen while I'm working out. It's constantly curating and adding new titles from the best of lists. So you are always on top of the latest information. And right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash Drew to start your seven-day free trial. That is Blinkist.com slash Drew, seven days free. One more time, that is Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S dot com slash D-R-E-W. It's fantastic. And just remember, 88% of financially successful people read at least 30 minutes per day. You're halfway there with just one of the Blinkist books. Get to it. Blinkist.com slash Drew. Happy birthday to the Lady Gang. Join the Hollywood Girl Posse as they kick off the new year with their 200th episode as they do what they do best, spill the tea on the hottest gossip with some great guests. Check out Lady Gang every Tuesday and Thursday on Podcast One or wherever you get your favorite podcast. If you or someone you love is dealing with addiction and addictive pathologies, you know that finding a treatment option that works for you can be very, very difficult. Truth is, every patient's needs are different and constantly evolving. That's why the people behind True Recovery in Orange County, California, realize that effective care cannot be one size fits all. They've developed a comprehensive range of treatments that can address all facets of drug and alcohol addiction. True Recovery's master's-level clinicians maintain small caseloads. This allows them to personalize their care. They offer individualized treatment plans from residential to outpatient, always with a holistic approach and a focus on accountability. As patients become ready, True Recovery offers assistance with life and coping skills, school and vocational rehabilitation, as well as community reintegration program. So you have highly talented staff, highly trained staff, limited caseloads, and not only are they focusing on the addiction, but a piece that's often missed, which is work and school, they're helping them with reintegration. I've spoken with True Recovery's medical director. I was impressed with the range of therapeutic modalities and psychiatric services. Their experience team is equipped to manage all kinds of cases with all levels of care. To request more information on True Recovery and how they can provide you with some personalized care, to request more information on how True Recovery can provide you with the personalized care you need, go to drdrew.com, drdrew.com, slash true. That is drdrew.com slash T-R-U-E. If you're looking to buy a car, you are familiar with terms like MSRP, and you might not know what that stands for, but there's many other things you don't know either, like invoice price, list price, dealer price. It's all designed to confuse, I think. Well, what you really want is the true price. Now we have the true price from True Car. You'll know exactly what you'll pay for the car you want, including fees and accessories, before you ever get to the dealership. True Car dealers will show you the true price on cars like the one you want, all from the comfort of your home. And you know True Price is a great price because True Car shows you what other people paid for the same car you want. You see a scattergram. You learn about the car. You learn about the price. And the True Car certified dealers know you're looking at the price. So they set that True Price competitively so they will win your business. And when you lock in a price, it is including everything, fees, accessories, and it's for an actual vehicle on a True Car certified dealer's lot. So when you're ready to buy new or used, visit True Car to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. We do everything we can to stay ahead of our health, of course, but uh, it's hard to predict the future. But now we have a way to sort of assess our risk. It's color.com. I cannot speak strongly enough about this product. I recommend it to almost all of my patients. I've done it. My family's done it. It's a genetic test that provides powerful insights 
in your health and your risk. You gain insights on certain cancer and heart conditions that may run your family that you would not have known about and whether or not you should start start your screenings and whether or not you should start your cancer screenings earlier and how often you should be doing them. It's a simple saliva test. It's ordered by physicians. You're in good hands. The kid is sent you in mail and they just spit in the, spit in the tube and off it goes. Uh, look, it is, it is so important to know your risk. After you get the results, you get one-on-one time with one of Colored Genetic Counselors. They're, they're experts in genetics, and they give you a huge readout, tons of information, and spend as much time as you want explaining it. My own case, I ended up having something called MSH6, so I needed to start having colonoscopies every year. They tested my sons because they were at risk, of course, too, and they had it. So now they started screening at age 25, and that wouldn't have been done until they were 50. And who knows, I shudder to think what could have happened between then and now. So getting a guiding hand for your health journey, Color is offering $25 off for our listeners when you visit color.com slash Drew. Again, it is color.com slash Drew. There is really everyone should do this. I cannot recommend it strongly enough. Well, if you're struggling to get a good night's sleep, uh, probably you don't have, probably it's because you don't have a purple mattress. Purple is amazing. It was founded by two brothers who've been developing cushion technology for over 30 years. In 2016, they finally decided to use their patented comfort technology to create Purple. It's the world's most scientific mattress. We have it. We love it. It's different from other mattresses. It, um, I don't know how to describe it. It's, it's so comfortable. It feels different than any you've been on before because it uses this brand new material that was developed by an actual rocket scientist. It's not like the memory phone you might be used to. It feels unique. It's both firm and soft at the same time. Keeps everything supported while still feeling really comfortable. It's breathable, so it sleeps cool. I have back problems, so I always can assess whether or not the the mattress is working for me because I wake up with my back feeling great off purple. And they have, of course, 100-night risk-free trial. If you are not fully satisfied, you can return your mattress for a full refund. It shows up. It just shows up at your house. You lay it out, and there's free shipping and returns if you don't like it. It's backed by a 10-year warranty. And you're going to love purple. Right now, our listeners get a free purple pillow with the purchase of the mattress. That's in addition to the great gifts they're offering site-wide. So all you got to do is text DREW, D-R-E-W, to 474747. That's the only way to get the free pillow. Text DREW to 474747. You will not be unhappy with purple. We certainly are not. We love it. Sort of sort of a meta-psychology here, which is how how can we determine what that means for any given individual, Right. Well, I guess I'm not that interested in that question. I'm more interested in, like, think of yourself and how could you make yourself happier, however you would conceive of what that would be. Because a lot of people will disagree about what happiness is, but if you said, well, could you be happier, however you conceive it, then they're like, yeah, I could be happier. And then, and then you don't get into this, like, what is happiness, and then, like, what would it mean to get there? And is there, like, a magical finish line that you cross, and how would you stay there, and how would you measure it? I think that that's pretty tough to do. Tell me about the book Power, Money, Fame, Sex. Oh, that was my first book. Oh, that was such a fun book to write. Uh, yeah, that's like the opposite of the Happiness Project. That was about it's about power, money, fame, sex, and it's written in the form of a user's guide. Um, so, some, somebody said to me, "Is it a joke or is it real?" Um, and it's both. Um, that was a really, <laughs> really fun book to work on. Did you learn something doing that? One? Oh, yeah, for what'd sure. What did yeah. you learn? Because I, I think those those ter- those, I, those phenomena again are relevant to we're off the rails a bit these days, it seems like to me. And, and when it comes to things like power and preoccupations with money and fame, those are all things that people are kind of I, I, pulling them off the rails, best way I can describe it. But what, what, what well, I think you that's say? always been true. Yeah. I don't think that we're in a, I don't think we're in a, in a unique time. I think those are, those are core, core values in human nature that however they come out at a particular time, they will. And they do. Um, <laughs> Certainly, you know, you look back and like the Aristotle folks, they were talking about it all the time. Yeah. Did you want it? What was right? How do you fight it? What are the real values? People today, all they do is try to get famous and grab power. They're obsessed with money. All they do is think about sex. Are you talking about the, the Stoics now talking about that? Or, or? Oh, well, the Stoics is like, yeah. you know, I mean, like, yeah, but what did the Stoics say about all the people around them? Right, yeah. Right. That's, that they were, that's what they were up against. Right. And, and the, to, to, given that you've been writing about human nature and trying to come get your head around it, do, do you feel like we are in anything unique with all this tribalism and envy and uh, mob action that seems to be preve- prevalent? 
Do I think that fund- human nature has fundamentally changed? No. Do we? Do you think we are in a weird time in terms of the kinds of behaviors that are manifesting? I think we are in a weird time, and I think we are often in weird times. Mm. You know, I mean, you can think back a hundred years, and you could be like, there were some weird times. Yeah. In the last hundred years, can you that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be very concerned about it and try to fix it and uh, address it and take it extremely seriously. But I don't think that this. I don't. I, I don't think that. Um, I think many people uh, have felt this way, even within the last century. Can, can you characterize what's happening? Do you put it to words? What do you mean, like in terms well, of? I mean, you know, it's easy to say there's tribalism. It's easy to say there's a lot of acting out of envy. I, I would argue that there's been an extreme tendency towards narcissism and the sort of aggregate of our personalities. Hmm. Um, I, I worked in a psychiatric hospital for 35 years, and the first 10 years I was there, I saw all kinds of different personality profiles. And, you know, we, we used to it used to used to have to fill out the diagnostic categories in, in a five category you know sort of uh, assessment and access to what was called the personality disorders and they you know for years and years I would see the guy just putting all kinds of different personality disorders in by the early to mid nineties only cluster B only cluster B B- borderline narcissist sociopath that was hmm. it that was why it. would you think that would be. Because, well, essentially, it's the the. I think we've been through an epidemic of childhood trauma, and and that is what creates those sorts of. That's what contributes to those cluster B constructs, and I think we've just you know. Uh, Do you think that more people are are exper- in the United States are experiencing childhood drama today than they have at any other time in our past? I think in the sixties, seventies, and eighties, we went through an epidemic. And the average childhood experience scores, you know, the famous Kaiser study showed this. I mean, we had it was mm. uncanny how much average childhood experience we've been going through. And so finally, people are looking at it and categorizing it and accepting it and and understanding that that's, that has a major influence on people's me- mental and physical health. And why and did why was there such a spike in that kind of behavior at that time? Hard to know. I mean, we families sort of stopped functioning well. There was a lot of a uh, lot of. You know, whatever you're into, man, and child children got exploited. Mm. Children got exploited as a result. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and mm-hmm. then once a child is exploited, they're you know about sixty percent of them become perpetrators, and they don't do it just once. You know, they mm-hmm. it has, it's, it's a so very you're like the kind of the trickle down from the hippie. Some of it was that it was just it was just hey man, if you're in, you know ki- kids are we're, we're just little people, man. There's little adults, and uh, hey, they're sexual too. And they she she came on to me. She was seven. She liked it. She was. They would hear these horrible things like that all the time. It was nuts. And finally, people started looking at it realistically. I can remember when I was talking about it in the media early. People go, oh, we're just talking about it more now. People are just more aware of it. No, 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 no. It mm. was it was a massive epidemic of this stuff. And, mm. uh, and then, well, there were de- definitely a lot of very major changes happening during that time. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and so you know the, it's happened before. It happened in pre-revolutionary France, and you know what happened then <laughs> was not so pretty. And mob action was sort of one of the more common consequences of all that. And here we're getting that again now. Mm. So. Hmm. Have you if any for a book that I never heard anybody talking about, it, even though it's like a towering classic of world literature, which like struck me to my very core, which is the book Crowds in Power Le by bon. Elias Canetti. Canetti, uh, 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 what's it called? Crowds in Power. Crowds in Power. I yeah, that. it's all about the crowd and how the crowd becomes a mob. I, th- I thought you know Le Bon's work, Le Bon, uh, was sort of the classic stuff. I'm going on my Amazon right now. Crowds in power. <laughs> yeah, I assure you. Um, just reading the chapter headings. I remember when I bought the book, I like was like I had to like put the book down and run into the other room because I was just like, oh my gosh, I know this book is going to blow my mind. And tell me, can you can you summarize what you learned from it about crowds? It's just all the ways that, how crowds form, what crowds do, what crowds release, the pack. Yeah. Uh, what crowds demand? Um, uh, it's um, it's it's a strange book, but really, really fascinating. It's available in a paperback. I can get it right now. Crowds in part. When was it written? Long. Oh, you mean decades ago? Yeah. Yeah. All right. I'm in. I Excellent. Know th- oh, good. I, I love just, making just a. Um, I love uh, recommending a book. Yes. Just, just because I because I'm trying to make sense of all this myself now, and I, I just. 
I, I know there's something wrong and we, we're not well and we need to find a way out. And I'm just hoping we can. I, and I have sort of infinite faith in humanity, so I'm expecting us to find a way out. Uh, I just wonder how much we're going to have to, you know, go through, what kind of crucible we have to go through before mm-hmm, we do. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. what occupies you now? What do you, what you've, written, you've got the new book coming out. Are you working on another one? Um, I have too many uh, things that I want to pursue. Um, so I'm kind of in this uncomfortable situation where I'm thinking about a lot of things all at once Mm -hmm. and I need to figure out where, like, what is my true destiny? Which is funny. This never really happened to me before. Usually it's like, just as I'm finishing up one book, it's like one idea just like hits me over the head. Um, you know, knocks me off my feet and fill, fills me with sort of a compulsion mm-hmm. um, to work on the next book, which is um, a little bit unsettling, but also very, just very clear, just very obvious what I should do next. This time I can see myself going in a couple different directions, and so um, just like letting that play out for a little while. One is about um, good judgment, mm. and one is about the five senses. Oh my God, judgment, I got to tell you something. It, it, the The... The millennial group, the millennial generation, mm-hmm. has lost track of the difference between knowledge, wisdom, and judgment. They think it's all knowledge and all information. So information. Mm-hmm. So there's information. There's knowledge, which is sort of a contextualized, you know, mm-hmm. broad, broad sweep of information, understanding information in a context. And then there's being able to apply it, and in the application, you get judgment. I mean, the reason you see a doctor is for judgment. You don't you don't go for our fund of knowledge. You go for our judgment to make the right call. The, the fund of knowledge goes without saying. You, you of course have everyone has the same fund of knowledge, but not everyone has the same ability to apply it. And and young people just do not get that. I love thinking about it in those three categories. That's so helpful. Now, have you seen them kind of turn their back on judgment, or it's just that they revere sheer information to the point where they, like, as long, if they can argue on the information, they won't even listen to somebody who's making an argument from judgment? Correct. They, they don't understand the value of judgment. They don't really, I'm not sure they understand what it is. So, so when I say, hey, look, you're arguing with me about something that I knew since the second year of medical school. By virtue of having seen that in the clinical setting, real life, a thousand times, right. I've developed a judgment yeah. about this where you know, my body reacts. I smell things. There's things that I yes. – uh, uncanny yeah. aspects to what I'm what, – how I apply my judgment yes. from all this experience that your information does not can't – even, can't even contemplate. You can't even, you can't even take into assessment. So do you think you can teach people good judgment, or do you think judgment is something that has can only accrue? And like to a person who yeah. is capable of developing it, which I think some weird. people just don't have good judgment, uh, and right. I don't think they ever would get good judgment. Yes. Can you convey judgment or not really? What do you think? I, I don't think you can convey great judgment. I think mm-hmm. you can. I think through adequate experience and training, I and mean, that's what medical training is. We're trying to make sure everyone has the same basic judgment, but then there are some people that are just exquisite. They're uncanny. And I, I got to tell you something, and humbly I say this, my dad had, he was apparently a practitioner, and he had just exquisite, I would think of some of the calls he would make, i go, God, no, and then he would be right. I'd be like, God, how do you know that? And and he, and I, I am blessed with a very similar thing, where I've, mm-hmm. got, I've got uncannily good judgment on stuff, and people will ask me how I know something, and I'll just say, I just I just know it. And when mm-hmm. I when I know it, when I feel it on my toes, it's just so. I don't have to question. I know it's going to be right. Well, it's funny because I've already started thinking about this. I, I was putting that in the category of like dog sense where yeah. there are people who just are at it almost seems like an extrasensory perception level. It, it's, Some people are like this with character. They're yeah. like, this guy's dishonest. He's lying. Right. Or I, there's something, uh, this, there's, this isn't, I don't trust this person. And you're like, what's not to trust? He seems like a good guy. Everybody we know likes him. And they're like, I mean, this dog sense where it's, it's or it, like it's, you, maybe it's developed over to sing so much that right. you're picking up things that you don't even know you're picking Co- up. Correct. Or and, maybe and, there is and, just some. I would argue, I would put that in for me. I, yeah. I, I, I am an extremely capable experiential learner. So experiences Ooh. teach me on a deep mm. level. I, I remember it 
you know, in a, on a bodily based level almost sometimes. Now, and so, and can you, if you're, is this just something that like, you don't even know how you know it, you just know it? Or is it like your mind is flooded with, I remember five years ago, I saw that patient and mm. seven years ago, I saw that patient that was like this. Is it like you're flooded with examples or it's more like it's even beyond examples. It's, it's just, it's, it's well, just, it is what it it's, is. It's a, it's a holistic impression. It's instantaneous. I could deconstruct it. And sometimes I will do that to make sure, just to check myself, mm-hmm. just to go, Cast your mind back to the previous. Not even cast my mind back. It's more of an inventory. I'll do a little inventory, like yeah, this, that, that, and this meets these criteria. And of course, you know, I'll just I'll do inventories, and the inventories may include some experiential imagery and some of its sort of lists almost in my head. So you're um, almost just like making sure that you're doing the due diligence, yes, that it's checking yes. out, that you're not letting yourself just be impulsive yes. or or carried away with intuition. Correct, but. I, I will do it sort of on my own, on my own after announcing I'm right. <laughs> you don't have to worry. I know. I know because I know it. And then I'll do a little inventory on myself just to make sure. Um, Susan, uh, excuse me, Gretchen. Susan's my wife's name. That's an interesting slip. Uh, Gretchen, it has been a, d- a pleasure to talk to you. I could talk to you all day, and I hope you will let me do so sometime, talk to you again, because um, we share interests, and I like the way you think, and I'm just so excited that you're thinking about these important things and, and helping people get their heads around them in ways they can. Uh, oh, well, thank because, you. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. You as well. I mean, there's nothing more important. I, I, you're like me, preoccupied with the human experience. And the, the, yes. when you get right down to it, I mean, why? what could be more important than that? I mean, that's really what we're all doing here, isn't it? And uh, helping people understand that I think is uh, very important. So again, it's uh, at Gretchen Rubin is on Twitter, uh, R-U-B-I-N, GretchenRubin.com. Go check the Happier with Gretchen Rubin podcast, which is awesome. It's a new podcast up Monday, Wednesdays on iTunes. I imagine wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, Gretchen, I hope to talk to you again soon. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Drew.com.